Today's scripture comes from Jonah 1, 1 to 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a, th a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. You may be seated. And as you see, let me pray for us once more. Father, we come to you now asking you to speak to us through your word. God, we recognize that on our own, we are blind to our spiritual condition. We are blind to seeing how we might be saved, how we might be rescued. And so, Lord, I pray now, would you come by your spirit, open our eyes, help us to see your wonders and glory. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we are continuing in our series, working through the book of Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. He's someone sent by God to deliver a message. But what's unique about the book of Jonah is that this book is less about the message and more about the messenger. The message is actually only five words long in the entire book. So chapter 3, verse 4, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's five words in the original language. That's the entirety of Jonah's message. And so this book is less about the message and more about the messenger. We don't need to be told what's wrong. We see what's wrong. And what we see is that what's wrong is not found in someone else, but it's actually found within Jonah himself. And that is what the Bible calls sin. Now, as a society, we push back against the concept of sin. And in many ways, for good reason. Sin has been used to denigrate people, to judge people, to make them feel less than human, and to exclude them. We, we push them away. You sinner. 
But Jonah gets at that in a very interesting way. See, the book of Jonah is in many ways funny. There's an irony and a a comedy to this book. The name Jonah means dove or innocence, and he is the exact opposite of that. Jonah's supposed to go east to Nineveh, and he goes west to Tarshish. He's supposed to preach judgment, and the outcome he gets is repentance. Jonah gets mad at plants for being destroyed, and yet he doesn't care if 10,000 or 120,000 persons are destroyed. So you're supposed to read this, and you, you laugh and chuckle. And, and this comedy has a purpose. Uh, anyone here seen the movie The Menu? Hands up. Menu. Okay, one of you, two of you. I haven't seen it either. That's fine. Um, but I watched the little, the little clips on YouTube, and so it feels like I watched the movie. Anyways, in case you don't know, uh, a lot of this movie uh, is basically foodies eating food. And they're, they're, um, they're tasting these, this food, and it's, and it's supposed to make you laugh. These foodies are having breadless bread plates. They're having chicken served on uh, phone cords. They're, uh, they're eating laser-engraved tortillas. They're, they're eating milk snow. They're, they're grasping at words, trying to describe in a brand new way the very food they're eating. And you're, you're watching this, and you're laughing at it. It's, it's over-the-top funny. You're laughing. You're, you're pointing at them. And then all of a sudden, you realize, oh, that's me. I like eating milk snow. I, I go to restaurants and spend more time talking about my food than eating the food. And so the very moment you think you're pointing at them, you actually realize you're pointing at yourself. That, in many ways, is the way Jonah works. It's disarming. We laugh and point in Jonah only to realize we're laughing and pointing at ourselves. We can't ostracize or devalue the sinner because we are the sinner. Ernest Becker, he was a professor who taught up at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby there, and he won the Pulitzer Prize Award for his book called The Denial of Death. In his award-winning book, The Denial of Death, he writes this. He says, the plight of modern man, right? This is, he says, what's wrong with our world today? The plight of modern man, a sinner with no word for it, or worse, who looks for the word for in a dictionary of psychology and thus only aggravates the problem of his separateness and hyper-consciousness. Let me try to explain what he's saying here. He's saying we all, every one of us, has this sense of inadequacy, of being insufficient, as though there's, there's something wrong with us. The difference is, is that beforehand, we had a word for it. We said the problem was our sin. And being able to identify what our problem was caused us to realize the solution. If sin was the solution, then we would have to turn to God, and so at least there was hope that God could do something about it. The problem now is that we still feel inadequate and insufficient, but we don't have a word to describe why. 
He says we're, we're grasping, we're, we're looking through dictionaries, trying to come up with some sort of reason for why we're broken. Some sort of reason for why things aren't the way we think they ought to be. The problem is, he says, the more we look, the deeper we search, the more and more broken we feel. So my aim this morning is to help us understand what sin is. I want us to see sin, and then I want us to see that grace is the remedy. Sin and grace. And so this morning, I have 10 points. <laughs> and I'm not joking. Um, uh, so all you note takers, so happy right now. Just getting that pen out, just so eager. Everyone else, not a note taker, um, you're welcome. I had 14 points. I actually cut four of them. So here we go. Ready? 10 points, sin and grace. Number one. Sin is distancing. Sin is distancing. Look at verse 3 again. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And then we read this again in verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah is trying to run away from God. See, according to the Bible, sin is not just breaking God's commandments. It's not just doing something bad. It's actually distancing ourselves from God. And so through our actions, in various types of ways, we, we drive a wedge between us and God. Now, Jonah does this consciously. Maybe this is you. You know who God is. You, you grew up in some sort of religious background, and yet you decided to reject him. You expected that he come through for you, that he heal that person, that he'd give you that thing that you desperately thought you needed. And he didn't. And so what good is he? And so you're consciously trying to take certain steps to put as much distance between that God who let you down and yourself. But we can also run away from God subconsciously. See, see you might be here and you're actually not sure if there's a God. Actually, you might be pretty sure that there isn't one. And even if there was a God, though, you're pretty sure he wouldn't have anything to do with you. But what the Bible tells us is that we actually were created to live in a relationship with God. That's the very reason for our existence. And so we're supposed to know him, to relate to him, to enjoy him, to be with him. And then even, therefore, through our indifference, we're supposed to know him and be with him, even in our indifference towards him, we drift further and further away. So all of us run. We just do it in different ways. Secondly, sin is decreation. It's decreation. Look at verses 1-3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. When we read that very first phrase there, the word of the Lord, that's supposed to remind us of creation. 
See, in the beginning, we also read that God spoke. God spoke the world into existence. God said, we read. God said, God said, God said. And with every word out of God's mouth, matter came into being. Everything was created out of nothing. And after every creative act, God said, it is good. It's good. See, when God creates, he doesn't do so willy-nilly. He has a design, and there's a purpose. There's, there's an intentionality. See, God is furnishing, he's creating a world, and when it operates as it was intended to, then life flourishes. Um, any, on any given day, if you walk through my house right now, it is a minefield of a thousand pieces of Lego. Um, it, it, we, are, we are just at that stage right now. Uh, my son wants to play Lego everywhere and anywhere. And um, my son invites me um, one evening to come over and help him build something. And, and he wants me to build him a police motorbike. I don't know where he got this idea from, but he wants me to build him a police motorbike. The problem is, um, we don't have motorbike tires. We have car tires. And so I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can, and I'm building this thing, but there's four tires on this thing. It's turning into a police car, not a police motorbike. And my son is getting furious with me. Uh, no, Daddy, he's going. It's not right. Uh, Two tires only, Daddy, not four tires. And I'm trying to explain to him, we don't, we don't have two tires. I can't do it that way. And so my son goes, he, he grabs the book, and he points. He wants a police uh, motorbike. He's pointing at it. Make, it. make it this way, Daddy. And I'm just feeling like the worst dad, right? I'm just, I can't give my son the thing he wants. I can't even build him a motorbike. And so I'm like, Darius, let's just pretend. Let's pretend that this is a motorbike. And he goes, no, it's not work this way. It doesn't work this way. See, my son understands what we do when we sin. We, we, we pretend a car can be a motorbike. We, we break the way God has created this world to function. We, we act against God's created design. We decreate. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot, she, she put it this way. She says, a clam glorifies God better than we do because the clam is being everything it was created to be, whereas we are not. God says, Jonah, do this. This is, what, this is what I've created you for. And Jonah goes, no, 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 I think I should do it differently. I think I have a better idea. And the result of going against God's design is pain, suffering, and frustration. But to live into God's design, well, then society thrives. Um, I don't have time for this, but I need to say this quickly. Maybe you've heard statistics about the fact that Christians uh, have the same quality of relationships as the rest of the world. That is not true. Um, nominal Christians actually have relationships that are worse than the rest of the world. Nominal being by name only. 
But Christians who regularly attend church actually thrive in their relationships compared to the rest of the world. Christians who regularly attend church, please hear this, are less likely to get divorced, test the highest in marital happiness, and report greater levels of sexual satisfaction. Honest sex ed would be get married and go to church. Christian men, please hear this, are more involved in their children's lives, have lower rates of domestic violence, spend less money on themselves and more money on their family. And as a result, many, even atheist sociologists will argue that the greatest movement in the world at empowering the well-being of women, children, and the poor is Christianity. You want to fix what's broken in this world, they say? Christianity is actually the solution. Sin, please hear this, is not just running away from God. Sin hurts. It's destroying us. Thirdly, sin is defiance. When we read those same words, the word of the Lord in verse 1, those words are not just a reminder of creation. They're also a specific phrase that clues us into the relationship Jonah had with God. Whenever we read that in the Bible, the word of the Lord came, it refers to a prophet. Jonah's a prophet. He has this special, intimate relationship with the Lord. He would hear the message of God, and then he was supposed to be the mouthpiece of God and proclaim that to others. Well, Jonah was actually quite a successful prophet. The king of Israel listened to him. What he said happened. He prophesied that Israel's borders would expand, and they did. And yet, and yet he still sinned. All it takes to sin is saying no to God. That's all it takes. No. And all of Jonah's past successes, all his past victories and obedience are no substitute for present obedience. It doesn't make him immune to sin. See, it actually, the, the funny thing is sometimes is actually all our success can put us in a more precarious situation. Because what happens is we look at others and we begin to compare ourselves with them. Oh, well, I'm not as bad as that person. So they probably need obedience more than I do. We, we, we look at our victories, our fruitfulness, our ministry success. We see lives being changed because of us. And we go, oh, well, my sin might not be that big of a deal to God. If it's a big deal, then how come he's giving me all this success? And you, we know stories of this. We, we have names in our mind, even right now, of successful people, famous Christians who fell into great sin. And so let me ask you, is there any area of your life where you're telling God no? He's asking you to live a certain way, calling you to a certain task. He's asking you to make a certain sacrifice, and you're going, no. You can have everything else, God, in my life, but this one thing is mine. I get to control this bit. Past obedience and past success is no substitute for present defiance. Fourthly, sin is discoverable. Discoverable. Verse 3 says, 
So Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. And what did you know? He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You might think, okay, here's Jonah. He goes down to Joppa. He's going, my plan is to get away from the Lord. I want to go to Tarshish, the, the ends of the world. He goes there. What do you find? It's a ship. Not just any ship. It's a ship going where he wanted to go. Joe might be going, this might be the will of God. Maybe, he, maybe he's fine with this. We need to hear that our enemy, the devil, it is his aim in life to destroy us. And the way he does that, to quote one pastor, is to ready the ship for Tarshish. The, the devil will put things in our path with the very purpose of having us stumble over them and fall into sin. If you're looking to sin, there will always be an opportunity. The solution is not to then fix what's out there, but it's to fix what's in here. See, if, if I had a, okay, let's do this. If I have a cup and I squeeze this, out comes water. It's water. I'm drinking water. Out comes water. Now, if I put milk inside and I squeeze this, out comes milk. But if there's water inside the cup, no matter how many times I squeeze this, no matter how hard I squeeze this, milk will never come out. The same is true of the human heart. If there is sin in our hearts, then when the world squeezes us, out comes sin. If you have a heart that is full of lust, then looking at pornography will come easily. If you are greedy, there will be opportunities to cheat, lie, and embezzle. If you're angry, there will always be a Lego piece to step on and make you yell. If there is sin in our heart, then out will come sin. And so it's not there that we need to fix, it's here. Jo uh, Jonah sinned not because there is a ship. Jonah sinned because he's prideful and he's a racist and he hates the Ninevites. Only when we deal with our sin in our hearts can we resist temptation when it comes our way. Fifthly, sin is descending. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. We hear a word three times thus far in our section. It's the word down. Down, down, down. He goes down to Joppa, verse 3. He goes down into the ship. He goes down into the inner part of the ship, verse 5. And then again in chapter 2, verse 6, he goes down to the land whose bars closed upon his life from the pit. Down, 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 down. This is not just physical descent for Jonah. This is spiritual descent. 
with every sin, the next one becomes easier and easier and easier. And his conscience becomes ever so numb and numb and numb. I heard one pastor um, talk about this First Nations clan that had a picture of our conscience. The way they talked about it, it was though there were a triangle in our guts, in our stomach. And every time we sinned, that, that triangle would spin. Every time we did something wrong, that triangle would turn and those points would jag at us. They would, they would hurt us and, and afflict us. And they were supposed to prompt us to stop. Well, eventually, if you leave that triangle spinning, if you let it go unchecked, it will spin and spin and spin until there are no more corners left and all you have left is a circle. And so sin will become ever so easy. That's what's happening to Jonah here. He's going down and down and down and every sin becomes ever so much more easy. He's in this downward spiral and the end result is death and separation from God. And so today, if you hear the voice of God in your conscience, do not harden your heart. So then, if this is sin, if this is the state that every one of us finds ourselves in, what hope does Jonah have? What hope do we have? To go back to Ernest Becker, if sin is the issue, then it's God we have to deal with. But the good news, this gospel, this word that means good news, that the Christian message is that the very person we've offended is the very person who can help us and who does help us. We've offended God, but yet God comes to the rescue, and it's all an act of grace. So five things about grace, okay? Grace is, number six, pursuing. Grace is pursuing. If sin is running away from God, grace is God running after us. Listen to the end of verse three. So Jonah rose. He's going with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And the very next thing we read, verse four, but the Lord... In, in the Hebrew language, those two lords there, Lord and Lord, are actually side by side. It's, it's Jonah's trying to turn away from the Lord, and then it's like the first thing he encounters is the Lord. You, you try to turn from him, and yet right there you bump into him again. It, it, see, if you follow the logic of this world, the way it should work is Jonah turned from the Lord, and then Jonah realized what he'd done. Jonah realized that he actually needed to turn back around and, and, and run after God. But that, that's not what it says. Jonah doesn't clean up his act at all here. God comes running after Jonah. Jonah's trying to push God away, and yet God keeps ringing him down. The Bono, the, the U2 singer, he, he talked about grace this way in an interview. He said, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And yet, along comes this idea called grace. 
to upend all that as you reap, as you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the, the consequences of your action, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. You run from God, and God starts running to interrupt your stride. Seven, grace is powerful. Grace is powerful. Verse four says this, So the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship where he had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots or, or throw dice that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, snake eyes. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. When God begins to chase after Jonah, he does so with all of his might and sovereignty. He sends wind and sea. In chapter 4, he will send wind in the desert. He sends a ship. And the language here in verse 4 is, is beautiful. It says the ship threatened to break apart. The only time that word threatened is used in the Bible is when an animate object, or, or a person is using it. Ships don't threaten to break apart. People make threats. But again, the idea is that even the ship is under God's control. They throw dice, and God makes it so that they come up on Jonah. God will send a large fish. Later in chapter 4, he will send a small worm. God is Lord over Israel and Nineveh. There is no place outside of God's control. And he sends it all after Jonah. And this is such good news. What type of God would he be if he would let us run to our destruction? No, he comes after us in full force, in all his might, trying to chase us down and stop us before we destroy ourselves. Number eight, grace is not only powerful, it is also precise. H how do you think of the storm? Do you think of it as though God is some um, angry toddler who's throwing a tantrum? Right? He's, just, he's just mad, he's just throwing things at Jonah? Is that how, is that how you think of it? Be because the, the word here is actually very precise. There's an intentionality to it. It says, verse 4, the Lord hurled. Elsewhere in the Bible, when we read that word hurl, it normally refers to a spear being thrown. There's a pointedness to what God is after here. 
It's measured and calculated. See, in verse 4, he'll curl the wind. But in verse 5, then, that leads to the mariners hurling cargo, which leads to verse 12, Jonah saying, hurl me overboard, which leads to the sailors in verse 15 actually hurling Jonah overboard. There's a chain reaction going on here. God has it perfectly calculated. He hurls the wind so that they'll have to hurl the cargo so they'll realize there's no hope except to hurl Jonah, and so they do hurl Jonah. Every action is is measured and and precise. He sends exactly what he needs to in order to get Jonah's attention. See, God knows Jonah's heart. He knows what he needs to encounter right here and right now in this moment. And so he pulls on that heartstring. To to quote Aslan, who's the lion or or this Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, he says, um, things never happen the same way twice. Things never happen the same way twice. And so what God uses to chase Jonah down will be different from what God uses to chase you down will be different from what God uses to chase you down the next time you sin. But God knows exactly what you need to encounter. And so he sends that your way. His grace is precise, but number nine, it is also painful. It can also be painful. What does it take for Jonah to be stopped in his tracks? It takes a storm. See, God's grace is always good, but it is not always gentle. If if someone is going to run out into the street, you hit them, you tackle them, you bring them down to the ground. You do whatever it takes to protect them. The same is often true with God's grace. See, Jonah, in this moment, needed to realize just how dependent on God he really is. He needs to realize just how little control he has. I love what happens in in the end of this section. So so look at verse 8 again. It says, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you from? And so Jonah answered them, verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then it says, then the men were exceedingly afraid. Uh, Up to this point, they were referred to as mariners or the captain. But now, in relation to this almighty God who's Lord of heaven and sea, they're just men. They're just men. We need to realize just how little we can control. It is a dangerous thing to think that we can control our lives. We just put everything in place. No one moved. Okay, it's fine. I finally got a grasp on everything. Because if we think we can control everything, then what happens is we think we can also solve our issue of sin. And when the greatest enemy comes our way, death itself, we're also tempted to face that alone. And so God sends storms into our lives to say, you need me. You can't do this alone. 
Walk with me. Let me come alongside you. Let me fix it for you. God brings trials and pain so that we'll trust him. And so lastly, number 10, grace is passive. It's passive. By its very definition, grace is not something we earn. It's a gift. Jonah did not deserve to have God chase him. Jonah did not deserve God to help him. Jonah didn't do anything positive to earn God's salvation. Nothing. Even in verse 12, right? So you might go, hold on. Didn't Jonah say to the sailors, so look at verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. You go, that's honorable. Look how great Jonah is finally coming to his senses, turning around, no longer running from God, throwing himself in the ocean to protect others. You want to know something? Jonah's still actually doing that out of sin. And we know that because in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah says, I actually wanted to die. Jonah's not turning and facing God. He's sinning all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. God, I would rather die than deal with those dirty Ninevites. He doesn't do anything to earn God's salvation. So why does God save Jonah? Why is it that moments before his death, he sends a large fish to swallow him up? How can God save Jonah? How is that just? How how can God save us? Well, 800 years after Jonah, God sent another, except this one was his son, and he came running after us. Jesus, Jesus on the cross threw himself into the ocean of God's wrath. On the cross, Jesus had a wedge driven between him and the Father. His perfect relationship, his eternal relationship with God was broken and separated. On the cross, Jesus died and drowned so that we wouldn't have to be. On the cross, Jesus paid our penalty for sin. And when you realize that, man, that question in verse 8 hit so hard. Verse 8, the, the, the mariners ask Jonah, or, or verse 9, they said, what is this that you have done? Verse 10, what is this that you have done? If you say your God is Lord of heaven and sea, what is this that you have done trying to run away from him? Listen to these words. I don't have these on the screen because you just need to hear this. Hear this in your heart. When they ask, okay, suppose you are in Jonah's place and you hear the question put to you, a man of God, by heathen men, what hast thou done? Did your God provoke you to flee from him? Did he deal so hardly and unkindly with you that you had no alternative but flight? Were you tired of your God? Had you found him out as no more worthy of your trust and obedience? Had you got to the end of all the duty that you owed to him or of all the protection and support that he could afford to you? Why didn't you listen to him? Produce your strong reasons. Has God been a wilderness to you? 
Have you found a better friend? Have you found a worthier portion? Have you found a sweeter employment than meditation in his word and calling on his name? Have you found him unfaithful to his promise? Have you discovered that he discourages his people? Will you say that the more you have known him, the less you have thought of him? What is this that you've done? Why are you running away from God, Jonah? And when our testimony is not just that our God is Lord of heaven and sea, but that he's the God who dies on our behalf. What is this that we have done? Now, when I see, when we come to actually grasp the fact that Jesus would lay his own life down in our place, man, that has heart-changing power. That has the ability to transform us. Not only does it have the power to forgive us of our sins, but man, my heart is softened and warmed. I want to serve a God like that. All of a sudden, I realize, of course obedience isn't oppressive. Of course those rules aren't there to push me down. Man, those are for my well-being. Because God gave his life for me. He doesn't do that and then leave me out to dry. When we see what Jesus has done for us, when we see that God chased us down, the person of his son, and that makes us want to live for him and serve him with all that we are. So let me end like this. One of my favorite scenes from the uh, Chronicle of Narnia series, so again, C.S. Lewis wrote this book, is in uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In that book, there's this boy, Eustace Scrub, He's a bratty and sinful little boy. He's, uh, he's the worst. Uh, he's annoying. And, well, Eustace is greedy. He's greedy like a dragon. And one day, because he's so greedy, greedy like a dragon, he becomes a dragon. And, well, now Eustace, clothed in dragon skin, is desperately trying to peel it off. He scratches at his scales. He pulls at it. He tugs. He scrapes away. And no matter how many layers he pulls off, he's still a dragon. No matter how hard he tries, he's still a dragon. And so eventually Aslan the lion comes. And he says this. I put it on the screen. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of seeing the stuff peel off. And when he peeled the beastly stuff right off, there I was, as smooth and as soft as a peeled switch. At the end of that chapter, he says, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. But to be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days where he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Our sin is not something we can remove at our own. We may try and try and try again. Just be better. Do more and, and be stronger and don't, don't mess up again. 
But the only one who can peel the sin away is Jesus. And when we invite him to do that, when we surrender our lives to him, go, God, it's in you and you alone that I trust. Well, then he gets right at our heart and makes us entirely new. Then he changes us and we become who we're meant to be. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we need you. God, we are very aware of our brokenness. And so we ask, come, chase us down and tear our sin away. Make us new. Make us like Jesus who lived and died and rose again so that we might be forgiven. God, expand our wonders and our glories of just how incredible you are. Help us to see that no matter how great we think you are, you're actually greater still. Because it's then that we realize, oh man, God, we can trust you. It's in you, Lord, that we trust. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.